back into it. So, Kyle, you know, we usually do our uh, lead-up patter where we just talk about whatever is on our mind until we get into the episode. But as as we both front-loaded um, before recording, uh, you're you've got the the fucking the grind on your back distracting you, and I uh, just came back from your lovely part of the country and brought some sort of plague back with me to Montana. And so your the 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 your uh, genes. Fuck, I'm tired. Your genes had been weakened by uh, by exposure to you know rural mountain air for too long, and so just a couple of days in the city, you know, completely overwhelmed your poor immune system because you're just not LA tough anymore. Yeah, I think not only that, I think also the fact that I interacted with more than, like, three people face-to-face over the course of a week, let alone a month, has just completely overwhelmed all of my, my senses, especially anything filtering out pathogens. Um, and because yeah. and because I'm front-loading this episode with this kind of grime, uh, we're just going to tell you right now, you're listening to uh, a very chunky episode of The Big Bang Theory Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Kyle. And every couple of weeks, we get together to watch our uh, favorite uh, parentheses, you know, totally meaningless, other than that we've committed a substantial chunk of our lives to it, uh, a television show, uh, which is The Big Bang Theory. We will talk about it. We will do everything we can to try not to talk about it, because we usually don't like it that much. iTunes people will say, God, why don't they like the show? And we'll always be like, hey, we tried to tell you. That's the premise. Why didn't you listen? Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll recommend things that we do actually enjoy and that we usually get much more excited to discuss. But before we get to that part, we do have to, we got to eat our vegetables. We got to get through our regular work. And so to this week, we discussed, uh, season seven, episode, uh, 16, officially titled the table polarization. And Kyle, I'm going to read the short summary here. Oh, that sigh of resignation. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to do a little bit more legwork this time for for putting in your feelings about this one, if you have any, and if you don't, I understand. But our, our cute little wiki summary is, Leonard buys a dining room table, which causes Sheldon to reevaluate the changes in his life. Meanwhile, Howard is offered a chance to get back to space, and Bernadette struggles with whether or not to encourage him. Amy diverts Sheldon's attempt to break up with her. That last part seems misleading because the breakup is really just a, a like almost a throwaway joke. Um, but yeah, our a plot is Leonard wants to add a table to the apartment because it makes more sense that they have this space they haven't been using and they now have enough friends among them that a table would make sense. But of course, we go back to Sheldon's kind of baseline proclivities and we refer back to the roommate contract that comes up whenever it conveniently needs to and and that is most of the a plot the, the extent to which sheldon even considers breaking up with amy is just a a game of leonard and amy both trying to manipulate him into whether he believes he is smart enough to see through them uh in their in their own um intentions regarding this table but there's no actual breakup threat that totally resolves it's like a half joke um, and then ultimately, I mean, hey, A-plot summarized, guess what? They get a table, they sit at it, and then um, they're still like, ah, this still just doesn't quite feel right. So we'll go back to the couches we were sitting on, and we'll see if that table, much like every other minor, minor female character, uh, just disappears without an expl- explanation or if it sticks around. I'd surely the table, like, 
So I don't know why they put a table in this up. Ep- unless, do you think someone was like, do you think this episode only exists because someone was like, you know, it is a little weird that we've never addressed the fact that there are way more people sitting around that little kitchen table. Wouldn't these, like, is anyone that invested? Does it matter? No, no. Kyle, I don't know why this episode exists. This is it, like... It really, it doubled at, like, I mean, normally when episode, when nothing happens in an episode, I at least feel them, like, you know, trying to have some new material or some new joke, but this is literally, like, Sheldon, it's another Sheldon doesn't like new things episode, and then it's the Wallowitz stuff, which is just a retread of stuff that's happened before. It's almost like a clip show episode in which there are no clips. Well, so with the the, the B plot, I think, yeah, is is Wallowitz. He's going back to space, and I think had they switched these around and focused more on this, I think Wallowitz is at least the idea for his plot is a lot more compelling because the the short version of this is he gets a call from someone at NASA that's like, hey man. Remember your last mission? Well, actually, we we want you back for another one. And so Wallowitz, his initial reaction is to be like, oh, right, space, I'm an astronaut. Of course I have to do this. It's radical. Why wouldn't I? And then Bernadette primarily, but also um, Raj and, of all people, uh, Bernie's dad, have what is... Another just really wild pull, but anyway. You know, it was bizarre. I mean, I liked that he was there, but it, it came out of nowhere. But they stage what is effectively an intervention um, to confront Wallowitz to say that, like, we all know that you want to be a cool astronaut, but you may not recall that this was one of the most um, miserable, protracted traumas you've been through. And as your friends that had to listen to you constantly complain and whine and be miserable, we are genuinely concerned about your well-being if you go back onto it. And I like the idea that 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 the, the, I like the conflict of that idea that you're like, I want to go and prove myself again, but I genuinely did have such a terrible experience. You know, will it be worth it? And then to have people around you. You know, actually saying, this may be the big prestigious thing, but not for you. We do not want to see you suffer like this. And I think that would be interesting. But yeah, again, it is placed second fiddle to whether the apartment should get a table. And I don't know. I don't remember any particularly good jokes about it. Like, you know, they, they go around the, the horn. Uh, it's what's his bucket that Bernie's cop dad references about having to like that Wallowitz once begged him to shoot him in the foot if it would get him off of a mission or something like that just but it doesn't really it's not that effective it just I I wish there were more focus on it I think it's the more interesting of the two plots but like I said it just it they they deal with it pretty summarily um any feelings about that half Kyle uh I just I never thought he was going to go back into space I was like and I, but I guess I don't know where my certainty came from, other than the fact that, like, no, they did this. Surely they wouldn't do an entire bit again. Well, actually, I, I, the real question is, where does my certainty of that come from? Well, I don't know, and maybe I'm, I'm, I, I can't speak for both of us here. I, my certainty, though, comes from the fact that it was very clearly a single season gimmick, and yeah, exactly, you know, like. Maybe for actual story reasons, they might revisit it. But as far as just like a, 
television production goes. No, they're like, oh, we have the Wallowitz and Space season, and the idea that they would ever sincerely revisit that. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, the conflict I thought was good, but I think you're right too that like this is at best a rehash. It wasn't ever actually going to happen. I guess another little thing, which doesn't factor into either of the actual plots, I just thought was a strange thing to, to joke about in this episode, is in the beginning of the episode, Wallowitz is making some sort of joke about wanting to get a goatee, and this re- results in a little bit of banter among the group about what a goatee actually is. And it turns out it's all just a, a setup, because Raj, say, instead of saying the more American mustache, you know, pronounces it moustache, and everyone thinks it's hilarious, and they can't get over how funny it is that he says moustache, and I'm like, we are seven and a half years into the show, this is the shit that bugs you, Raj? All of the the racist jokes and stereotypes about you, your family, your homeland, you've taken it all in stride, but now, after all these years... The way you say moustache, that is something you cannot bear. That is where a line has been crossed. But again, they don't do anything with it. It's just like the one thing it seems that he, that I've noticed anyway, that he's expressed genuine annoyment uh, about after all of this this other abuse. Well, that and apparently, you know, just in this episode, we do get the example, which when you put them together, boy, suddenly it doesn't seem so good, which is that he, uh, they made him always, he was always the one who had to sit on the floor until, uh, as a general rule, which I don't even know. I haven't been keeping track of who's sitting on the floor, but boy, you wouldn't want your Indian friend to be like, you know, every time I come over, everybody else always gets a seat, and I'm always the one who ends up sitting on the floor. Yeah, that would be weird, you know, because you say one Indian friend, and I'm like, well, I don't know if that's as much of an issue, but then I remember, well, one Indian friend implying everyone else in the room is very white, and it's like, oh yeah, that does suck. (laughs) That is a strange look. But yeah, again, not addressed. Could have been its own uh, issue, but I don't know. It's it's fine. It's a fine episode. It's one of these ones where I think I'd, I'd be more annoyed by one if I weren't sick and feeling just run down, too run down to have excited emotions. But also, I don't know. Like, I feel like as much as I hate to admit it, that there have been a couple episodes this season that I think have actually been, like, really high quality that I've genuinely enjoyed. But this is a reminder that, like, oh, yeah, but that's that isn't necessarily indicative of a general uptick. <laughs> that maybe... <laughs> hopefully it's a trend, but I, I can't rule out that maybe I just got a couple good episodes and I have to remember that this is the standard. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Kyle, like I said, it's... I could focus on more of this. That's most of it. I don't have a lot of feelings on this. Do you have any other feelings about this episode? Uh, oh, I guess just another... The only other thing I was going to bring up is uh, when Wallowitz is talking about going into space, he says, if something should happen to you, just promise me you'll, you know, be there for Bernadette. And Raj is like, oh, absolutely. In fact, we'll name our first kid after you. Just kidding about that. Which was like... It's not. A, it would be a funny joke, except he says it so deadpan that it's actually pretty. Like, I guess we're still doing the thing where Raj has a crush on Bernadette, which they just hadn't circled back to in a while. So I'm just like, is this just the yeah. episode where all of the old canon comes back again? Oh well, I mean, not too seriously, but I think we're reading this differently. Where you you see that as the old crush. 
I see it as Raj knowing that he has a very sacred duty to fulfill for his friend, which is, you know, getting all deep in that Bernie to make sure that there's some sort of child left for the memory. But, um, you know, different readings. But, yeah, that, this middling throwaway episode. Thank you, Season 7, Episode 16. <laughs> but, I mean, with that, I think we will have a much better time, even if we do go rushing into the things that we actually enjoy. And so, uh, without further ado, yeah, let's just move on past this kind of stink episode and, and try to focus on some good stuff for a moment. And, you know, I've got one kind of half-cocked that I'm still ready to talk about, but Kyle, would you like to go first, or shall I? Sure, I'll go. Um, so, this is an interesting... Um, moment in uh the world of i guess the classics and uh sort of uh ancient literature because there is a new translation of the iliad out so for those of you who don't know the iliad is uh one of the oldest uh works of literature in western uh civilization it was originally an epic poem that without getting too in the weeds was probably designed and to be performed out loud for people who couldn't read um which was most well, people and then eventually... and quick interruption in case anyone who listens to the podcast thinks kyle is doing this just for podcast cred when i visited him in la we went to the bookstore looking for this and talking about his excitement in it so take this shit seriously sorry kyle continue no that's fine it's just why would anybody think that this wasn't my whole deal it's i feel like i've been very well i think you fit into it kyle i just think that also you know someone less genuine than you would love to have an opportunity, yeah, to be like, no, I'm reading the classical literature, but no, you and I, and I just, I just want to be there to remind everyone that you're a real homie. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I've read this. You know, this was for part of my degree in like philosophy and ancient literature and shit. This was like the very first book I ever read in college. Um, so I have some familiarity with it, and I also love it a lot. Uh, but anyway, so ancient ancient story uh, centering around the Trojan War. Uh, it doesn't have the part with the Trojan horse in it. That comes after the 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 bit that's in the the poem ends. But uh, anyway, there's a new English translation translation by uh, a woman named Emily Wilson, um, and she has, as far as I can tell, without reading the introduction or any of the interviews she's given, she has tried very hard to sort of make a very, very readable, like, comprehensible to modern, like, ear sensibility of the Iliad. So it is, you know, I've been reading it out loud, uh, and it is, um, uh, I've basically been forcing my partner to listen to me recite the Iliad to them, because I'm a sadist. Um, but, uh, it is a very, um, it, how do I say this? It rolls off the tongue, and it's pretty easy to figure out what's going on. So uh, I think if you were ever looking to read this particular work, and I think it has, you know, it's up there with, like, Hamlet and Moby Dick in terms of, like, things that just have world of, like, works of art that have world historical value, um, then I think you should absolutely read it. Oh, I guess I should say, so anyway, it's, the story is about, basically, there's this guy called Achilles, you've probably heard of him because of Achilles's heel, which, again, does not come up in this particular story. Um, but he's this legendary warrior, and he's at Troy, 
uh, I'm sorry, he and all of his buddies, the these Greek raiders have come to destroy Troy and make a bunch of money by looting it. They're basically pirates or like Viking raiders. Uh, and they've been fighting to sack, to destroy Troy for like many years. Uh, and at the start of the story, they're, you know, in media res in the middle of that siege. But he gets into an argument with... Uh, with uh, the other big ruler of the Greeks, a guy named Agamemnon, um, who basically they have a disagreement about which of them is essentially more important. They basically have a dick measuring contest. And Achilles gets his feelings hurt, and so he's like, screw you guys, you're going to have to fight without me for a while. And spoiler alert, they proceed to start getting their asses kicked. So it's a big epic war story with intimate descriptions of... uh, of close quarters combat and you know incredibly fragile male egos um and uh spoil uh i guess trite slight trigger warning a large portion of the story does revolve around you know uh men basically uh use seeing women as as uh objects and literal prizes to be won in war so there's just a constant undercurrent although nothing super explicit but there's just a constant undercurrent of like threatening sexual vibes throughout the book uh and uh again translated by a woman so i'm sure she did um I'm sure she did it both in the interest of accuracy and on purpose. But, you know, whenever they talk about the women in the story, they don't call it. They're usually like my trophy. That's my trophy over there. Isn't she pretty? And that's an interesting. I'm into it. And so um, anything else in in recommending someone that is going to finally translate this to be like, yeah, no, these bunch of like charming adventurous rapists that are running around. Or charming adventurous rapist, I think, is the perfect description of like it's a little bit me. It's not. It's a little bit perfect. Well done. Yeah. So yeah, you go ahead and rely on your fancy translators while I just spit these obvious truths. Um. And so obviously this was Iliad. Who is translator again? Emily Wilson. Okay. If you're cool, like like, there's a big argue. I think there are a lot of like literary like. There are people who are arguing right now in the very small circles where shit like this is cared about, about, you know, how accurate is this translation or how, how much of a feminist agenda is is whatevering this translation and, like, how closely does it correspond to the ancient Greek or does it capture certain senses of certain words? And I am not equipped to evaluate any of that because <laughs> I, I, I do not speak the incredibly, incredibly niche dialect of the ancient dead language that this was written in all i can say is uh i've read like multiple versions of the same epic poem uh this one reads pretty well and i like it well hooray um as someone who has had to read my own series of ancient translated poems uh readability sure does sound swell (laughs) That's just the ability to comprehend without both a thesaurus and a series of footnotes would be delightful. Well, on that note, I will switch to my recommendation, <coughs> which, excuse me, is not nearly as, as culturally high-minded. Uh, in fact, I think it is just a, a counterpart to another recommendation I made a few weeks ago, which is I had seen, I forget what year it was, maybe 1997, uh, the, the film version of Spawn. And recommended it because it was very bad, but it was at least bad in an interesting way. 
and because it was, um, you know, this really big attempt to take what was becoming an increasingly popular comic hero, superhero, whatever you want to call him, Spawn, and, and turn it into a, a bigger multimedia thing. And, you know, I don't think through any sort of cynicism, just through some some misguided steps, you know, totally dropping the ball. Um, but I'd mention at the same time um, that not too far from Spawn's release, there was another very early black superhero uh, in the form of Blade. And that uh, is my recommendation. Is it, is it is not part of the MCU, alas, but I am recommending the initial crack at... Oh, excuse me. I am recommending the initial film version of Blade. Not part of the MCU. Has nothing to do with any of that, which is refreshing, because even though it is not the most particularly effective story, um, it is nonetheless... It is nonetheless so contained and straightforward, and it is impossible to understate how likable Wesley Snipes is. Like, I just can't get over what uh, a charming force he is. He is both, like, a great, you know, physical actor as far as being able to do his martial arts and whatnot go, but also just, like, but just as far as his presence goes, like, he has so much individual personality in a way that I think is unique and away from most of the common Marvel heroes where I think whether they have had direct contact with Joss Whedon or not, I think to a certain degree, every single MCU character wants to be fun and likable and they all have this kind of bland friendliness, pop culture, reverie, kind of even like a a bit of ironic disconnection from everything they're dealing with, no matter whether you are a goodie, a baddie, or anything else. Like, everyone is kind of winking at the fact that they're in one of these silly comic book movies. But Blade doesn't do any of that shit. No. Uh, Blade is there because he's got vampires to kill, and it's a job, and he needs to do it, and it's going to be fun. And you know what? There's going to be stupid violence that is somehow not so over the top that even as I get more delicate old man sensibilities, none of it goes on my bad taste radar. It very, very quickly establishes and maintains pretty good consistency in its own vampire lore. Because that's another thing. is like, hey, in case you didn't already know this, vampires aren't real, and you can make whatever rules you want about them. And Blade, I think, does a great job of just knocking those out and getting into the action as soon as it can. And also, on the one hand, it is dealing with a big kind of world-conquering plot, because the basic plot, in as much as it even matters, is that there is a yield ancient vampire council, one of the youngest members who himself is not a pure-blood vampire and thus is not taken seriously. You know, he Deacon wants... Deacon Frost. With the, the most 90s name possible, yes. Deacon Frost. He's very cool. He's a Stephen Dorff. And he wants to show these old vampires what's up. And he thinks that these ancient texts, these ancient vampire texts, that the rest of the council are like, that's probably old gibberish. Who would ever want to read something, you fucking dork? No, it turns out that, yeah, it's actually part of some ancient blood god summoning ritual, and he wants to make stuff for the blood god, yada yada. And in that sense, yeah, bigger cosmic terror. But at the end of the day, he's just another fucking fang head that Blade's got to take out. You know, that's that's his beginning and end of his day. And um, I'm also recommending it 
I think, kind of like Spawn, um, neither of these movies matter anymore. <laughs> like they, which is kind of a bummer. They were big deals when they came out, and both of them because they had, they were they were really trying to be jumping off points for two completely different black superheroes, one much more successful than the other, but also like, they're both from this like really fun, though you know, not always successful, like pre-MCU experimental time where there was no formula for how to make a superhero movie. And so everyone is just kind of trying to do their own thing. And I think Blade like really stands out as a success that does not conform, you know, as I've mentioned to anything that you would expect from the modern superhero movies. And, you know, I know that they're trying to reincorporate a modern Blade into the MCU, and unless there's some sort of miracle, though, I couldn't give a shit. Like, I know it's just going to be whatever cute nonsense everything else in that universe is. I mean, the whole thing is effectively dead to me. And so please do go back and watch this weird little experiment from, like, 97 or 98. And then watch Spawn. And then be like, how did they get so far away and so close to making a good superhero movie? Like, how did... How did two studios get like extreme opposite poles on how to do this? Um, so that that is my recommendation. Those are your choices this week. You can either read what could be a, a an incredible translation of the Iliad, or or you can watch some middling uh, late '90s superhero so, movies. One of so this has never been confirmed or denied, but one of the things that many people point out is that the Blade movie. One of the things it it also works pretty well as a Vampire the Masquerade movie. Um, I take it, yeah. And uh, th- some people just don't think that, like, Vampire the Masquerade came out in the mid-90s, and its whole aesthetic and everything is very much like the nightclub scene in the Blade movie, so it might not be a coincidence that those two, that the one looks so much like the other. I don't doubt that in the slightest, and that's I'm not someone who played much Vampire at the time, not because I didn't want to, because I was in that delicate stage of high school where it's like, okay, which of us are clearly literate, and which of us is this going to be a real chore for? And so, not much progress in the, the TTRPGs of the time. But, um, no, like, based on my little experience, I can see that. Like, I think pretty early on in Blade 2, they try to establish that there are, in fact, these yeah, different clans with their different rules and have all their different um, expectations of themselves and their uh, familiars and whatnot. And they don't get deep into it, obviously, because, you know, it is like a, a day in the life kind of thing. But that would be fun to open up that universe more. I don't know. That was one of those things where the whole larger vampire world, I was like, this is this is what my little teen heart is telling me is natural. This is how I know that in spite of my fear, I am truly a cute little closet goth. If only I could find friends who are adequately spooky while not taking this shit super seriously. <laughs> <laughs>